Welcome to the Been There, Got Out podcast. I'm Lisa, a state certified domestic violence advocate and veteran of more than eight years in the trenches of the legal system, the last five successfully representing myself. And I'm Chris. I'm a certified high conflict divorce coach. And between the two of us, we have all this knowledge and experience that we never wanted. But now we can put it to great use, providing expert guidance to people in high conflict divorce and custody situations so you have the best chance in court and beyond. Having the right support from people who get it is so critical to getting you and your children through it as unscathed as possible. And that's exactly what we do through our interviews with experts and other content right here on this podcast. So let's get to it. In this episode of the Been There, Got Out podcast, we welcome Canadian Alex Shaw, who shares her incredible story of being trafficked and living with a gang, which saved her life, to working with law enforcement and other services so that what happened to her won't happen to others. She also gets into what family members and friends can do to actually help loved ones in dangerous relationships. Take it away, Lisa. Hi, everyone. We are going on for real. It's Lisa with Been There, Got Out. Sorry for my stuffy nose. I had surgery yesterday and in my sinuses. And uh, I just sound like I have a head cold, but I don't. It's just from the surgery. But anyway, we didn't want to cancel today's interview because we planned it for quite a while. And I have to give boss lady, known as Angie from Canada, the credit for today, which she gets a lot of credit for a a number of our guests because she introduces me to the most incredible people including Alex, who is the person that is the spotlight today. Um, Alex is also from Canada, and I don't see her yet, but she has this, okay, she's got this incredible story, and I think I'm actually just going to let her introduce herself instead of me. (laughs) Hi. All right, we're going to just do this, and hi, Angie. We can't get you on here but like I said Angie gets all the credit for this one uh Angie I'm sorry I know know. just keep just keep typing Angie and asking questions all right so Alex why don't you introduce yourself because you've got this extraordinary story and I know a lot of people say I've got this amazing story and people do but yours is really really extreme and you've done a lot of public speaking about it so tell us who you are and what you're going to talk about today and then let's let's talk about how you got yourself into this, which is usually like a bad question to ask a victim, but I think it has like a flip side. I, I love it. And I, I want to answer it so that maybe I can help people not get into it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My name is Alexandria Shaw. Um, I am up here in the great white North Canada. Um, I'm here today to talk to you guys about how I got involved in the gang subculture, how I got pulled into it, um, the the years following it, how I got out, and the impact it had on my family and friends and where I'm at now. Um, and I get to do this up here frequently and talking to youth, and I'm hoping that somebody can take something away from it that'll either help them or help somebody they know. So I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure you can, and I'm so glad that you're talking about, you know, from your own perspective, but one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later in this interview is how your family was affected by it, and I know that we also are contacted often by family members who are so concerned with their sons and daughters who are in these dangerous relationships, and they just feel so helpless, so maybe you can share a little bit about that in in a few minutes, but first, um, again, that awful wonderful question how did you get yourself into this like you have a different sort of background with your family that I think people would think she would never how did this happen to her yeah I think it's important that everybody knows um I came from upper middle class both my parents are still together today we grew I grew up on a farm in southern Ontario um I rode horses most of my life like most of my youth up until I was about 13 it it took up the majority of my life, probably seven days a week, multiple times um, a day. And I was competitive. And 
one day I got kicked out of the barn I was riding for and it broke my heart and I just didn't know who I was anymore and I lost my sense of identity and and I had no idea where I was going in life because I always thought I was going to be this like Olympian and and that was going to be my life and when I got kicked out the the person that kicked me out of the barn was she was like a, a parent figure to me so it just it hurt so bad that I couldn't go on riding horses at that time and I started hanging hanging out with the wrong crowd, trying to figure out who it was. And I just wanted people to think I was worthy. Um, yeah. How old were you, Alex, at this time, like when you got kicked out of the, the I, horse life? I was 11 or 12, I would say, maybe even 13, maybe 13. Um, so beginning of adolescence, that's like a really hard time. I, I used to teach high school. I know yeah. adolescence is a, is a hard, a hard period. And everyone's struggling with identity. And here you have this very stable solid existence and then it was just completely blown apart yeah so it happened the year i so i could have my age wrong it happened the year like labor day weekend going into grade nine <laughs> that's when it happened so it was just like the worst time for for that to have happened because i was still going into this new school with all these new people and all you want is to be accepted and i just lost everything who i thought i was going to be um, so fast forward, I ended up uh, going to a high school party with the wrong crowd when I was about 15. I was uh, sexually assaulted by multiple people at this, um, at this party. Uh, um, I, at the time, I didn't know what had happened. I woke up the next morning and I just knew something was wrong. My mom picked me up. We went home. She asked me if I wanted to go to the hospital. I said, no, I just want to go home. Uh, we did, and when I went to the bathroom, there's just blood everywhere. Um, so, uh, and then I said, like, I, I got to go to the hospital. They did a sexual assault kit on me. Um, and then I went to the police, but I had been roofied. So I, I didn't know what exactly had happened to me. I just knew that I hurt and that something had happened. And the sexual assault kit did indicate that there was trauma. So, um when I went to the police, I was 15. I was terrified. I was hurt. Um, that was actually, that was my first sexual experience. Um, so the police officer, and it wasn't his intention. I didn't know that now, but what he had said to me was, if you are found to be lying, you could potentially be charged. Um, and at 15 with everything I had going on, I, I was so scared and I couldn't remember what had happened. So I did not proceed with charges. I never sought out appropriate uh, mental health or psychological support for what I had been through. Um, and that was kind of it. I started drinking heavily. I started smoking a lot of marijuana. Um, okay, pause, pause. Alex, what about your family at the time? I always interrupt people. But like your family found out this happened to their teenage daughter. Or did they not know? Was it not communicated what had happened? How? What was their response to hearing what had happened? So I had so all, all through high school, like ever since I got kicked out of the farm, I had always been like a troubled kid. I I, I never really was pleasant to be around. I always had like a pretty big chip on my shoulder, and then this happened, and I, I told my I told my mom like my mom went to the hospital with me, and she was there through that whole process, um, and it was horrible for her because she just watched me and I just sat there and cried the whole time. Yeah. So she let my dad know what had happened. And my dad, like, we just couldn't talk about it. Like that isn't something that my parents grew up with, nor is it something they taught me about. Like it, it, it just wasn't something that was in our circle or in our life, any sort of violence like that, or, or an invasion of, of your, self essentially yeah so so nobody just nobody really talked about it yeah like we they, they had tried to set me up with a fam like our family doctor um to see if i could get support and i just couldn't i wasn't there i didn't want to talk about it i was ashamed because i i couldn't remember it i just knew that what the kid had said and and how i had felt and that's all i really had to go on um, so what am I, if the police at that time in my mind, they didn't believe me, who, why would I talk to anybody who else, who, another adult who isn't going to listen? Right, right, right. So, and not just that they didn't believe you, but they threatened with retaliation when you couldn't even remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's scary. Yeah. So, 
So my, I kind of felt alone, um, not because my parents made it that way, but because they didn't know how to deal with this either. Um, they thought by having me talk to a physician, like that would be good, but it just didn't work for me for where I was at, um, it, for my headspace at that time. Yeah. I mean, a lot of teenagers would never want to talk about this with anybody. Yeah. They don't want to talk about just experiences they're dealing with in general, but something so extreme that it makes sense. Yeah. And, and just having that, um, the reinforcement from police that I wasn't believed or that was how I perceived what they were saying. It, it was really hard like to, to talk about it with anybody. <laughs> well, I mean, the impression is like you did something wrong and you're going to get in trouble. So instead of like, you're the victim here, it's like, you better watch yourself. So it's like yeah. punishing almost. Yeah. And, and then you just, and I had already had confidence issues. I already didn't know who I was. And that just sort of beat me down a little more and, and yeah. made me kind of distrustful. Um, and to numb that, I started drinking and smoking marijuana and cigarettes and anything I could to get that feeling of hurt and shame and anger, because um, there's a lot of that associated with it, um, yeah, to go away. Um, and so then I ended up meeting my daughter's father when I was 18. Um, and I got pregnant fairly quickly. And he, um, I, I didn't realize at the time, because again, it, harder drugs were not something that I grew up with or that I really knew a lot about. Um, but he had an addiction to um, pills and cocaine. And I, I, I finally figured it out um, when I was, I think, eight, eight or nine months pregnant. Um, and uh, so we, like, I had moved in with him in Southern Ontario. We were living together. I ended up staying with him thinking that I could help him, that I could change him. Um, he was quite a bit older than I was, um, and it just didn't work out. Um, so I ended up leaving him when my daughter was a year and a half, I want to say. And because of his addiction, he wasn't able to see her um, off and on. It was either, in my mind, it had to be a get clean or you can't see her yeah. um, because of how unpredictable he was. Um, because of his addiction, it made him quite abusive um, emotionally, um, financially, sometimes physically, but not not the extreme that I learned later on in, in life. Um, so that was that part. And he cheated on me frequently. And I already had um, body image issues because of the sexual assault. Um, so being cheated on and, and his emotional abuse did involve a lot of um, negativity directed towards my body. Um, so I, I was pretty beaten down and I decided I was going to go back to school. Um, so I worked four jobs at the time. Um, <laughs> with, a, with a baby. Yeah. yeah, with my daughter. So I worked four jobs and I, and I was going to school. Um, and I, I had actually decided to take police foundations um, because I wanted to to be the person in that interview room with teenagers like me and giving them a little more encouragement. <laughs> uh, so I was in police foundations and through police foundations, you kind of have to get a feel for what you're going to be doing and what you might be seeing on the field. So I decided to get a job. Um, one of my jobs was working security and I, um, I was working in a bar, but we also did private security for artists coming into uh, the GTA, Toronto area, for those of you that don't know GTA. Um, so I met him and the first year was like, like the best year of my life. He, he told me everything I needed to hear. Like I was beautiful. Um, he told me that I needed to, he actually held me to a higher standard than anybody ever had. It's like, if your makeup's not right, like you're not coming out hold yourself to a higher standard have your nails done um present yourself in public like you respect yourself and other people will give you respect um 
told me he loved me. He, told, he continually told me how smart I was, how beautiful I was, um, how, like how, how proud he was of me, which is every single thing that I needed to hear from somebody. Because at that time, I just wanted somebody to love me. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what it's interesting, about. like the, the insidious nature there, what you said, like he held you to a higher standard, but your makeup had to be perfect. You, so I could see how it sort of blends in with like someone saying, well, I want you to take care of yourself. Like, I want you to value yourself more, but at the same time, like, if you don't do it this way, then, then yeah. what? And, that, and, and I just wouldn't be allowed to go out with him or I wouldn't be allowed to attend events or I wouldn't, and it was, um, and so to back up, he was the owner of the security club, which is how I ended up meeting him, which is how I ended up dating him. And now looking back, the things he said were, huge red flags like if you don't do your makeup or you're not dressed a certain way or your nails aren't perfect um it, huge red flags to me <laughs> but well we, it's always 2020 hindsight yeah. oh, but, but at, at the time it to me it was like somebody cared enough to care what i looked like somebody cared yeah. enough to not beat me down about what i looked like but but have an expectation and want me to meet it and that's what i focused on um, rather than those red flags shooting up everywhere. Yeah, give, so interesting. Yeah, to give you an idea of like how big of a hold and how much trust I put into him because he, he made me feel so good about myself. We were driving across the GTA and there's probably about seven red lights. I want to seven or eight red lights over the course of our drive at like 2 a.m. from one club to my house. Uh, where we were working that night to my home and he was like just drive through the red lights i drove through every single red light i didn't stop like i didn't look i didn't stop i was just like okay like if and, and it's looking back i'm like how stupid can you possibly be but that's i'm like if he's putting enough faith in me and he's making me feel this good i i don't want to let him down and it was all about not letting him down and looking back, those little things were big tests for what was to come in a bit. Yeah. So um, during that first year, it was incredible. Um, he took me out everywhere. Um, I, he introduced me to his friends and family. Um, and his friends from Toronto would come up to my parents' farm. We would do tours so that they could see uh, how like a little hobby farm ran. Um, seahorses pet the cows the usual, the usual. like thing what did your parents think of him um they they didn't really they didn't really have an opinion at the time like they didn't mind him he was very very articulate very intelligent very polite um so they they didn't have a lot of bad to say about him it was just like they had seeing where I'd come from with my daughter's father at the time and where he was at in his life and, and how beaten down I was and how um, how just emotionally abusive he was to me. So to not have that. And I didn't tell them a lot of the stuff about like why my nails had to be done or why I always had to be dressed a certain way. They just knew that I had all of a sudden started becoming more confident in myself. And so they didn't see how it got there or the driving force behind that. They just saw that when I got with him, I all of a sudden started having more confidence. So they probably liked that at the time. Um, or it looked, it looked like confidence. Yeah. But what you just yeah. describe isn't really confidence. It's doing what somebody else wants you to do, even though you don't realize it at the time. Yeah. And they, but they never, like, I, I would never share that information with them. I would never right. share the whys of it. They just saw the pretty picture from the outside. Yeah. Um, not the not the dirty details right and comparing him to the last one like oh this one's so much better like look how together she looks yeah yeah so at this time like we're a year into it at this time and his keep in mind his family like his friends know where my parents house is um i've brought them there they know where i live most of them have met my daughter who wasn't she was probably i want to say like three four three or four at the time um, and we were, so we were driving an artist from one area of the GTA to another to do a concert. She had just flown in, um, from out of country and she was supposed to do a show that night. So we were driving 
driving her across the GTA and it was about an hour and a half drive. We got pulled over and he received a ticket. So we got pulled over by police. He receives his ticket. He hands me the ticket to throw in the glove box. So keep in mind that artist is in the back seat. Um, so I can't really say anything, but I look at him and the name on the ticket was not the name I had known him by. And my heart kind of did this stop, but I didn't really understand what was going on at the time because I was focused on, on a getting to this concert. And I was kind of thinking, well, maybe the cop got it wrong. You're thinking all these different things. Like you're not actually putting it all together at this time. It, yeah. It's like that cognitive dissonance. Like I, it doesn't make sense, but it must be this, 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 and can't ever be like that he lied about his name. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm making up all these excuses because there's no way this guy that I've known for a year now and am involved with would would lie to me. Like there's no, no way. So we get to the hotel, um, everybody gets settled and I, I called him on it, which was the first time I've ever actually questioned him over the course of our relationship. I'm like, who are you? Like, what, why is the name on the ticket different? Like, who are you? What's your name? What's going on here? Because now I've had time to think about it. Yeah. And, and I literally said it to him like that. I wasn't, it wasn't, but it was the first time I questioned him and he physically assaulted me to a point where I was unrecognizable. There was blood on the ceiling. Uh, the, the duvet was covered um, in blood. There was blood like all over the, the blinds. Um, my eyes were swollen shut. Most of my ribs were broken on both sides. Um, I had bruises like in my ears oh. from how how bad at one point I was knocked unconscious and woke up and it was still going on. So I don't actually know how long the assault happened. And I woke up the next day, like I couldn't open my eyes really. Um, and I was just in so much pain. <laughs> and then you barely... asking him, who are you? Because he got a ticket with a different name on it. Yeah. Like, how dare you question yeah his reality yeah. or the reality that he presented to you. Yeah. And so the next day I had to spend another night in this city and I can't really open my eyes enough in the morning to like do anything. I can't look at a phone. Like I, I, I can barely move because of the pain I was in. And then he's the one that's taking care of me and he's sorry. And he doesn't know what came over him and, and he's just so apologetic. And now he's trying to like put ice on my eyes and he's trying to like put me into the shower so like, he can wash off because my nose was like broken. And just, I was a big bloody mess essentially. So now I'm stuck with him for another at least 24 hours. And over that 24 hours, he's the one that's nursing me back to somewhat human. Yeah. And that's like, too of like he caused the destruction and then he swoops in as like I'm gonna help take care of you I'm gonna be the savior yeah yeah so I um, he kept saying he doesn't know what came over him um, and I, I kind of got trapped into it again and I went home and um, I'd never seen my dad cry before and he actually cried because I was so broken and that it was then that I started lying um, and trying to cover for him. So what I told everybody was that I had ended up in the bottom of a barroom brawl and I just got stomped on. And the extent of my injuries, people believed it because I was just so distorted. Like part of my face kind of is still to this day, like unlevel and I've had to have like a lot of dental work done. Um, but um, he, but, but my family, I don't know if they believed it at the time, but they, they didn't indicate that they didn't. And uh, so my parents still accepted him into the house whenever he'd come over. Um, and it was that point that I had realized that I'm in something. I just don't know what it is. And over the next couple of months, I realized that he was actually um, the member of a gang in Southern Ontario. Uh, like a prominent gang in Southern Ontario and that all the people that I had been introducing to my, my family and my, my, and my farm, like all his friends that I brought up were actually gang members. And I was being groomed to one traffic drugs and there was going to be a home takeover over at my parents' farm so that they could grow, um, use it as a grow off essentially. 
What is a home takeover like? What it, what does that mean? I mean, so I, I could think of it like, like, how did you like? What did they say they were gonna do? So, so they were gonna use my parents' farm, and usually what happens is people come in and they um, they do a takeover of the house and how the do, property. How, how does that work? I mean, I'm just, <laughs> like I'm picturing all kinds of things. Um, it usually in, involves like violence or somebody owes somebody something in my case it was it was going to be violence towards my parents um and and they were going to either accept the fact that their house was going to be used as a grow up or consequences and the or consequences are uh extreme violence yeah i are getting a question that i also was thinking like where was your daughter so my daughter um when i was when I was okay enough to be around her. She was with me. Um, like when I wasn't assaulted or um, I wasn't healing, she was with me or she was with my parents. So I would take her to my parents. So this is where the line comes in. I would take her to my parents and be like, oh, can you watch her for a night? And then they'd watch her for a night. And if I got assaulted or something happened, I wouldn't be able to pick her up for a couple of days. So I just wouldn't show up. I wouldn't say anything. I just wouldn't show up because I couldn't come up with enough lies and I could I couldn't keep it from them so I would just stay away and then I would show up I'd pick Rihanna up and my mom would kind of just look at me like what are you doing with your life type thing so here not really your family like your parents and your daughter's life and your own life is being threatened yeah and I I can't imagine a way out of this no uh so this went on for a couple of years um where I mean the assaults weren't frequent, but there wasn't that they weren't always as bad as the first time. And sometimes they were way worse than the first time. Um, so in order to get me to do certain things, um, violence was always kind of a part of it or a threat. And so if I didn't do something, he would sit on me and break my fingers and toes. Um, if like some of the assaults, uh, I had multiple concussions, many, many concussions over the course of the two years. Um, and, uh, there was a lot of sexual assault that occurred, um, which unfortunately I couldn't always, uh, hide from my daughter. <laughs> um, but we, or, and, and over those two years, like I stole money from my parents. I was just a really crappy human being. I pushed all my friends away. I isolated myself because I didn't want people involved and they didn't ever equate it to really it being him because he was so articulate and so kind. And so like he came across as extremely genuine when you met him and just very uh, well-spoken, intelligent businessman, not the guy I knew him to be. So um, I kept trying to distance from my parents even just to see, like just to try and keep them safe. Um, and at the end of the two years, so there's the first year, so now we're like three years into this. I um, I phoned a friend, that I, one of my best friends growing up, and he uh, his family's heavily involved in another substantial, larger gang than I was involved in. Um, and I asked for help, and I got to live with them. Okay, pause. So three years in, putting up with all this stuff, I mean, obviously, like, being completely controlled on all levels by this person. What made you finally decide to do that? I mean, what would, that's, to me, that's so deep into something. I, I it's like a, a drowning person, like how, what made you call and ask for help at that point? So I always thought that, um, I always thought that, so there's a ranking system and you just, work your way up in their lives and sometimes you become their like number one girl because you're never like actually he's never just with one person um and I always kept saying like if I if I can just put up with this long enough like maybe eventually this part of it will stop and I'll actually be treated like a human because every time he assaulted me there was always like the aftercare he would always be the one that saves me he would always be the one that like um provided for me like he helped me a lot which was the twisted part of it was I relied on him so right. much 
even if like the physical violence would continue, but I still needed him to help me because I couldn't function like I used to be able to. Yeah, what you're describing is is so, um, I think it's, it's really important because people don't understand when they don't know somebody or they haven't lived through it, they'll just say, well, if that person hit you and hurt you, why didn't you just leave? But this, like what you're articulating is just so deeply, like it's like a perfect example of, the insidious kind of coercive control. So he caused the harm, but then he was your savior. So you were so dependent on him. That's what an abuser does is they want to make you dependent on them. You know, and that's what he did. And a lot of the times, like coming from where I came from, where I didn't have a lot of confidence and I, did, and I, I never thought I was worth it. And I never thought I was worthy of anything. Um, he would blame the assaults on me. And I would believe that. Like if you had just done what you were supposed to do, you're a smart girl, why can't you figure it out? And it would get flipped around on me. And I'd be like, well, I guess so. But um, I, I was used to traffic uh, drugs throughout the GTA. Um, and, and for those two years, that's what I did. Um, I, I would fight it off as long as I could because it wasn't something I, I ever wanted to do ever saw myself doing or it just wasn't me it's not my background it's not how I grew up um and so I, I would fight it and that's when the extreme assaults would happen and the last time it happened he he's a bigger guy he picked me up by my throat and he dropped me onto my back on my head onto a cement floor and he knocked me unconscious um and when I came to he had said I I, oh my god I thought I killed you I don't know what I was going to tell the police and then he said you're effing like he's like you're effing lucky you woke up because I had no idea what I was going to tell the police I mean that statement alone I thought I killed you first concern is I didn't know what to tell the police not a smidgen of concern for you <laughs> your health anything just like oh I'm gonna get in trouble yeah and that was the most eye-opening this is never going to end. And the only way it's going to end is if I'm dead. Um, and that's when I went to my friend to, to see what they could do to help me. Um, and so I was able to live with them and it kind of put me in a spot where I was like, I'm not bragging when I say I'm, I was untouchable, it made, I wasn't worth a fight that it would cause between the two different gangs. So I wasn't involved with the other gang, like the gang that I lived with. It, it just so happened that I was really good friends and had a family friend that, that kind of took me in. And yeah, so you basically were saved by one gang from another gang. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems like what other choice would you have to protect yourself? Yeah. And, your daughter and your yeah, parents. Like, I never had to do anything for the other gang. It was a, it was a really, like, I grew up with him from the time we were kids. Um, I knew his whole family. Like, I, it, it wasn't like I had to, I wasn't working for them. But I don't suggest anybody else do it because my situation was different. I had grown up with these people. Um, and they were, like, because of my situation, it was a friendship. It was asking for help from a friend and it was provided in a way that I was able to get out. But if I think the average person tried to do that, you would be jumping from one fire into an even hotter burning fire. Cause usually that's the way it would work. Well, um, I think like it's transactional, you know? Yeah. And, so, and just in my case, it didn't end up like I just because of my personal relationship with this person, I, it wasn't, a transactional thing it wasn't it was strictly so that I could keep my daughter and I and and, and my family okay um so I, when we did I was gonna say Alex can you can you describe a little like people picture gangs as like motorcycle rough like what was it like living with a gang like the gang that helped you because I know there's one thing you said where you're like well we played Scrabble we did <laughs> Like it wasn't, it wasn't like would like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it and, because I don't know what actually living like going to a one of their houses like their their party houses would have been like I, I don't know what that's like but living with them in their family environment which is what I got to do 
it, we played Scrabble. We cooked dinner. Everybody was in bed by 10. Like there was children in the house. It wasn't, there wasn't drugs. There wasn't guns in that house. There was nothing in that house. It was, it was a family home. Yeah. And if, if I was being, um, because there were times um, throughout like when I had been able to extricate and I was living with the, with this, in this house, um, that I would be followed by him, um, that I would go. Your ex, your ex. In the other day. Yeah. That I would go to like one of the, the, the gang's home, like the gang is not like their family home just to get him off my tail. And and that sort of helped back him off, like, and realize that it wasn't just this house that was protecting me. It was, I, I was protected because I'm, I'm friends with them. I, but again, I, I don't necessarily love telling that part of the story because I'm always worried people think that's a viable option. And I really want them to know it's not. My case was just so different. Yeah. Um, because of growing up with them and stuff like that, that it, it was an option for me, but it's not an option for everyone yeah. else. And the question I often get is, why didn't you go to police? Like, I hear that so often. Um, and he convinced me that he had police on his payroll. And I know that not, I, I don't believe that to be true now. But at the time, like, I was scared. I, what happens if he's, do I want to call his bluff and find out he wasn't lying? Yeah. And then, yeah. and even if I get rid of him, like there's so many other people involved in this now. So um, I didn't end up going, going to police and there weren't the organizations available now that assist people in my situation. And there wasn't the funding available to assist people like me back then. So that's why I took the route I did. There was just no, to me, no other option to keep myself, my daughter and my family safe. Yeah. So your family during this time when you were living with the other gang, the friend, what, what was their impression? Like, what did they think? They, so I, they, up until very recently, like a couple of years ago, they actually had no idea how significant, like how in depth I was like into it. Um, they knew that I had lived, they thought that there, it was an abusive relationship gone south and that I had just moved in with because they knew the people that I grew up with too. They knew them because I went to school with them. They'd be at my house every weekend. Like they thought I had just moved in to a house. Right. Not realizing it was so, yeah, <laughs> it was so pertinent. <laughs> right. 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 At that point. Yeah. So, uh, so after this, you, you, tell us how you left, how you actually got away from that and now into your, career because it's really different um so i stayed down there for a couple of years and i just realized i was never going to be i stayed in southern ontario for a while and i just realized i was never ever going to be able to um move on i was always going to be looking over my shoulder i was i was always the, the fear was always there um so i packed up and i moved 17 hours away <laughs> and now I and I actually to be honest didn't realize there was a name for what I had gone through I didn't realize that I had been trafficked I didn't even know anything about it I just knew that I had lived this insane experience when I got to Thunder Bay um, I had never actually um, I had never actually sought out help for what I had been through so I um, I started volunteering a lot because I knew I needed to help people. So I, initially I volunteered with the fire department here. Um, I started volunteering with victim services. Um, I started, and through victim services, I started helping um, survivors of human trafficking. And then I started helping um, members that were caught up in gangs that were being brought up here and trying to help them out as well. And I would meet them through uh, victim services and I would connect them with different organizations. And one of those organizations um, is, is Engage 416, which is actually how I ended up being introduced to Angie. 
and <laughs> and all those guys and that and that's where my my story of being able to talk about this comes in because I I actually learned that I, I was trafficked um, I learned the terminology and I learned that because of my experience I can actually talk to those to people of those very violent crimes um, uh, a little bit easier than maybe somebody that that's been to school for it or or just is in the job for it and I'm not taking away from an education or anything but I think life my life experience allows me to reach a level of understanding with with those survivors and be able to help them a little more <laughs> yeah I mean you, you're like the epitome of our company name been there got out like you are a role model of somebody who went through this extraordinary experience and came out on the other side and then some oh thanks <laughs> I I try I think um now I I um I was the vice chair for crime stoppers I was uh um I, I was with Boots on the Ground, which is actually a peer support for first responders up here, um, because I believe there are gaps in, in our system that um, make it difficult for victims and police to communicate on a level that they can both understand each other and appreciate where each other's coming from. So um, I was volunteering with that, and I'm a, a 911 dispatcher for ambulance. <laughs> And that's what I get to do now. Yeah. <laughs> as well as, as so, talk to people. go ahead. Yeah, as well as get just get to talk to um, youth and, and people through uh, in Toronto. So, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure they trust you more because you speak from experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Incredible. I, I always hope that people can take away that your situation today isn't necessarily where you have to be tomorrow. Um, and there's always a way and there's so many organizations to help you get out of where you're at. It doesn't matter what it is or how deep into it you are. There's always somebody that, that can reach and pull you out if you are willing to put the work in. So, Yeah. So let's talk about that and go into the part about family. So let's say it's you or it's, it's somebody else and they have a family member that they, I mean, with your family, they didn't know a lot of what was going on, yeah. but a lot of our people, People there, they see it's obvious. It's more overt. Where where their child, their adult child, is in a toxic, dangerous relationship. Like, what advice could you give parents or loved ones who see this and just feel so helpless? I'm a strong advocate for loving someone where they're at, um, and that's probably one of the hardest things you could ever do because people they're their nature is to reach in and want to grab and pull people out of whatever situation they're in. There's nobody in this world that would have been able to grab and pull me out before I was ready. I had to come to terms with it. I had to make my plan. I had to do the legwork because I knew all the moving parts and I knew how hard it was going to be. So my parents, even if they had known, and even if they had been like, well, we'll just do this, you can come and stay with us and blah, 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 just get out of it, just leave. And people who say just leave, you don't know all the moving parts that are happening and how dangerous just leaving can potentially be, not only for myself, but for everyone around me. Right. So right. huge advocate for love them where they're at. Um, and that means not necessarily trying to be the hero and reaching in and pulling them out then. But gather your resources, because eventually that person is going to want help. It may not be today and you have to accept that. And that's really hard because people are like, well, you're in a bad situation, just get out. And they want to help you, which is human nature, but that's not always feasible to somebody in that situation. So love them where they're at, provide support. That doesn't mean you have to be like financially responsible for them or anything like that, but love them, support them, tell them that you love them and gather resources because when they are ready, you will be prepared. And you can say, this organization can help you. This person can help you. This is what we have ready for you when you're ready. Yeah. One of the things we talked about also was how, like you mentioned that when you're involved with this, you were lying to your family and you were stealing. A lot of parents experience that too. How could, how could you love someone who's lying and stealing? Like how could you protect yourself as a family member when you have 
somebody that you care about who's treating you terribly, who you can't trust for whatever reason, but it's happening. The, it is hard. Um, the, the lying is that that's part of loving them where they're at. It, and that's like one of the hardest parts because you want to call them on their lies, but they're lying to you for a reason, whatever it is, don't try and guess cause you'll drive yourself nuts and it'll build a understand that whatever they're doing right now, they aren't ready for the help you want to provide. And they're going to lie to you to get whatever they want from you. Be prepared for that. Don't ask too many questions. Don't dig. Just, okay, I love you. And I'm here for you when you're ready to have a real talk. It, it, it is. It is a hard ask and it's a hard tell for parents because you want to call your child. You, you want them to do good. You want your friends to do better. You want to see them succeed. And it, until they're ready to succeed, you can't force them. And that's the hardest thing I think about knowing somebody in my situation or any anything like this is that I, I lied relentlessly. I stole um, all the time. And I just, I wish I could go back and tell my parents what was happening. But at the time I just was so scared for them and myself, so. Yeah, how have they come to terms with who you were versus who you are now? I think they're proud of me now. <laughs> I think, so when I came out with my first podcast, I had never actually spoken to most of my family about it because to me it was, um, to me, it, I don't want to say it wasn't a big deal, but it's something that I, I went through and I, I lived through and now I get to go and talk to people about it. But it, to me, it's just part of my life. And so I never really spoke in depth about it to many people. Um, there was friends and family that saw it when it was happening, like when I got out and stuff. And there's really close friends that knew the entire time, but I never really spoke to my parents about it because it just wasn't how I grew up and I didn't want to embarrass them. And I didn't want them to feel like it was an excuse for what I had put them through. So when I released the first podcast back, I think in 2021, um, my brother phoned me and he was like, Hey, do you have a second? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I watched your podcast and he just started crying. And I had never heard my brother cry before. And I was like, mad, like what's going, what's going on? And he's, he's like, I always thought you were just an asshole. Sorry for the French, but there it is. That what he said, I, I just thought you were an asshole. None of us ever knew how bad it was. And he was like heartbroken for me. So now, now it's, I've gotten to rebuild relationships that were not great because they all thought I was just this really, I think they thought I was an addict and, and I never had any addictions back. Like when that was going on, I, I, I never, I didn't have anything. <laughs> so I, but I think that's what they believe because I lied so much and that, and, and I stole all the time. So I think that, that was their perception. And now I've gotten to rebuild with my parents and I've gotten to rebuild with my brother and my cousins and, and some of my friends too. So now they have a better understanding of, of why I did things that I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I'm just keeping an eye on the time because I, we only have a few more minutes, but can you talk a little bit about your daughter? What's going on with her after everything you've been through? She is this, incredible phenomenal human being if i think if you were to ask and that's not just me being a mom bragging i'm genuinely proud of the person she is uh we openly talk about all of this um how it's impacted her um because she was there for um for some of the sexual assault stuff so um recognizing that she's going to need supports for that but she is so driven to, um, she wants to become a psychologist. 
Uh, she works every single day, like seven hours on homework just to make sure she gets it. Um, wow, how old is she now? She's 16. So she went out, she got her, her driver's license. She's, um, she, she's part of Sea um, Cadets here. She's just so responsible that, like she's probably more responsible than I am most of the time. <laughs> yeah, what's it like for you? Because she's the age that you were in the midst of this awful, I mean, beginning, almost like sort of at the beginning, the early part. As I've been so, so honest with her and because she lived through some of it with me and she has memories of it, um, I don't worry about that with her. Um, I do see it with her friends and I see, um, I see how their self-confidence and, and how easily accessible people are on the internet now. I, I see that and that's terrifying. So sometimes I try and talk to some of her friends, um, but she, I don't worry about that with her. And I know that she, she always talks to her friends openly about it too, so that they know, um, like she, the understanding is you may not be able to stop somebody from getting into it, but you can give them enough resources to get out when they're ready. Yeah. And that's, so that's what I've provided her. And I, I hope that she provides it to others as well, but I don't really worry about that with her because she's so, so dedicated to not having that happen to her. Yeah. I mean, it's like you go through the terrible experiences, but sometimes, you know, your kids come out the better in different ways because of the awfulness that, that happened in the past. Yeah, so it's, a, it's like an unfortunate, fortunate circumstance, right. I guess, that <laughs> we had to go through what we went through to get to where we are today. Yeah. Okay, so uh, how can people find you or help or anything? We've got like a couple more minutes. Um, Find me on Instagram. Um, I can send you my email and people can always email me. Um, I add me on Instagram anytime. I will always help whoever I can help. I'll always talk to whoever I can talk to, to, to help them or give them hope. Or if you know somebody that's going through something and you want, want me to chat with them or you want me to be a resource when, when they're ready to get out, I have no problem ever doing anything like that. That's awesome. You have a connection to all kinds of other resources too. Yeah. 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 Huge advocate for victim services and, and, you know, sexual assault centers, abuse centers. I don't know what you have in the States, but give me a person, tell me an area and I will research everything. <laughs> awesome. Well, I want to thank, before I even thank you, I got to thank Angie for introducing us and bringing you on here. Cause your story I think is going to help a lot of people. I, I hope so. I really Absolutely. hope. Thank you, Angie. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my nose has been so awful, but we made it through. You survived. I'm <laughs> so proud of you. <laughs> All right, Alex, let's stay in touch. And thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, guys. Right, Thank you care. for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Been There, Got Out podcast. Please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. And you can find us easily on all major social media, but especially Instagram and YouTube. If you think we might be able to help you with your own situation, just visit beenthergotout.com and click the button to schedule a complimentary discovery call. Thanks again, and see you next time.